This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mind Love Premium, episode 63. Today's episode is all about how children learn. If there were really true educators with a vision of how learning happens, they would realize that you can learn Spanish by playing the piano. (laughs) There's Spanish songs, there's Spanish music, there's so much that's related. To think that everything has got to be separate is another thing a school does. Like we have school subjects, English, math, science, history. But the reality is it's all of a piece. Only in school do we have these dotted lines separating math from history from science. We've kind of mistaken growth for education. You're going to grow no matter what, and you're going to learn. But we tend to think that you won't grow or, or learn properly unless you're in school for 18 years. We all learn, right? But the weird thing is, I don't think most of us really know how it happens. Well, we might kind of know, but do you know the best ways to learn or how to optimize learning? What about for your kids? So if we don't know how to learn, how are we supposed to know how to teach? And if we don't know how to teach, then we are likely going to be even more reliant on the system of schooling. I am not a big fan of school in general. Most of the time you hear that from people who weren't good at school, so of course they wouldn't like it, right? Well, guess what? I was great at school. School came easy to me. I was the kid my friends would cheat off of during tests. I got scholarships based on grades and achievements. So why do I think school kind of sucks then? Because after all my hard work, I feel like school was just one big broken promise. I spent way too much time learning things that I would never use after high school or college, and I spent zero time on many of the things that actually matter. So at this point, I've pretty much committed to homeschooling my baby when the time comes, or finding some other types of alternative schooling, and I don't really care what it takes because I'm doing it. I also understand that many people don't have this luxury. They might work full-time and rely on public schooling for childcare, basically, or just for their own sanity. I am not judging. But regardless of if you plan on or already homeschool your child, or if they attend public or private school, there will still be opportunities to learn at home, especially if you understand how children learn. Another problem I have with traditional schooling is, ironically, It goes against all of the ways that children actually learn. They don't learn well under pressure. They don't learn well with standardized tests. They don't learn well with things they have no interest in learning. They don't learn general information that doesn't have an obvious application. They don't learn as well by watching adults. They don't learn well by sitting still for hours at a time. I could go on. Also, didn't I just sum up what school looks like? (laughs) Well, if you can't tell, I really like to read and listen to books. Maybe I'm making up for all the learning I should have done in school. Well, that passion is basically the basis for this podcast. Constantly learning and developing. My curiosity leads the way. 
Before I had a baby, I had quite a few people reach out and pitch topics based on parenting, and I always turned them down. It didn't apply to me, so I wasn't interested. And if I knew I wasn't interested, I wouldn't be able to give my all to the episode. Well, if that applies to me, a 36-year-old woman, why would I think a 5-year-old or a 14-year-old would be any different? And the sad part is, if a child fails a subject, they're not just getting a bad grade in math. They're risking their futures because they won't get into a good college, therefore they won't get a good job. Or they're risking their social circles because they might get held back a grade until they pass. Or they're risking their parents' disappointment or humiliation from peers or any of the other number of things that adults scare them with. Aside from all that fear, I think the worst part is the real risk that they build a self-belief that they're stupid. But what if the problem isn't the child? What if the problem is the school system? And what if homeschooling doesn't have to look like we think it does? For all of you that got thrown into some version of teaching your child at home this year, remember that remote learning is not the same as homeschooling. What most parents got thrown into was replicating the teacher's agenda at home. But that is not necessarily how children need to learn. And in fact, it's not how they learn best. If you want an intro into what homeschooling can look like, episode 206 goes really well with this episode. And today we are building upon the knowledge by learning how children learn. Our guest is Patrick Ferenga. He has more than 40 years of fieldwork, advocacy, and personal experience helping parents and children learn outside of school. He worked closely with a founder of the modern homeschooling movement, the author and teacher John Holt. Holt founded Growing Without Schooling magazine in 1977, and after his death in 1985, Pat continued his legacy. Pat now speaks as a homeschooling and unschooling expert at education conferences around the world, as well as with online radio and television talk shows. So three key things we will learn are how to reverse engineer learning by looking at the whole, how to help children deal with mistakes in a way that won't make them shut down, and how to use fantasy to engage children. But before we dive into that, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you get a little inspiration to set your tone for the day and give you something positive to focus on, kind of like a short note from your higher self and an excellent and self-paced way to learn about yourself every day. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you grow. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. And now let's welcome Patrick Ferenga to the show. Thanks, Melissa. So to start out, what was your introduction into this whole idea of unschooling and the world of John Holt? (laughs) (laughs) I started off as a volunteer. I had no intention of staying with, I didn't even know who John Holt was, except that I was just a newly minted master's in English and I couldn't find a job teaching in Massachusetts because we had a property tax rollback bill back then. It was in 1981. So they were firing teachers, not hiring them. I thought for sure I could work in a private or a public school, but I couldn't. So I wound up doing what a lot of uh, (laughs) college graduates do. I worked in retail when I was just researching the new edition of Teacher Own that that came out this week. One of the things I learned is that 40%, actually a little more than 40% of all college graduates are underemployed. 
and this is according to the New York Federal Reserve, which has been tracking the number of graduates in their employment since 1990. And 40%, I mean, and what they mean by underemployed is it's work that could be done by someone without a college degree. So right there, I was already like primed to hear. That was my first thing. I was surprised at how little mobility a graduate degree in a BA gave you. I was sold a bill of goods, I felt, when I graduated. <laughs> and then, you know, so I'm working in a cash register at a bookstore. And one of the uh, cashiers there, her husband was uh, working at Holt Associates. And John was just finishing up the book teacher on then. Uh, hadn't come into print yet. But he was getting ready to do a tour of Scandinavia. Like, I think it was about a two or three-month speaking tour. I volunteered at the office to learn word processing which in those days was a standalone machine, not part of a... They didn't have computers with word processors then. So I thought I was going to be uh, learn this new skill and then move into the world of publishing or something, but even just be a secretary, but just something better than doing, you know, working a cash register, which I did when I was in high school. <laughs> you know, I didn't need more skills on that. So I volunteered there. And one night, because I was still working, I was a volunteer, so I would come up in the evening and type up letters and correspondence and whatnot on the, on the word processor. And one night I showed up there and John Holt was there. He was back from his tour. He was sitting in the book stacks. Uh, he loved to sit in the, um, among all the books that we had and, and read his review books. We get maybe five or ten new books a week <laughs> and read them, or at least skim most of them, decide whether or not he wanted to sell them or write about them or something. And when I met him, he started talking, and he asked me, so, Pat, what do you want to do? Clearly, you don't want to be shuttling books around from shelf to shelf for the rest of your life. And so I said, I want to be a teacher. And John said, why? And I said, because I like working with children. And then John took his glasses off, looked me square in the eye, and said, oh, Pat, you got it all wrong. If you're going to become a teacher, you're not going to work with students. You're going to work on students. And that just set me back. I was, first of all, I felt insulted. It was like, I want to be a teacher. I didn't think it was going to be. But John immediately said, saw this and said, have you read any of my books? And I said, no. <laughs> Is that familiar with the work of like Ivan Illich or George Dennison? I said, no. <laughs> okay, well, if you want to talk about these things, do a little reading and come back. But I'm not here to argue with you. I'm just saying, based on my experience, that's what teaching has been. That took me back. Then the other thing was his book Teacher Own did come out, and I was one of my first volunteer jobs was to remove it from the boxes and put them on the shelves. And so I figured that would be a good book for me to start with, since I'd not read anything by John Holt. And guess what? I couldn't get through it. I couldn't get into it. It just seemed so crazy. The idea, how's it? I said all the questions that everyone has, and here it is 2021, and I'm still answering these questions, but everyone has them. How are you going to get into college if you don't have a high school degree? How are you going to learn higher math? All those standard questions. How's a parent going to work in homeschool? How does that work? So I just couldn't get into it. And eventually, one of my work colleagues said, why don't you read John's first book, How Children Fail? And that explains why he gave up on teaching. And then his second book, How Children Learn, is why he's so hopeful about how education can be changed by working with children and not on them. So... I did. And How Children Fail spoke to me, as did How Children Learn. And it still took me about a year or two before I came around to the concepts in Teach Your Own. But there's no doubt that they're all wrapped up in those first two books. John just kept diving deeper into this idea of how do children learn and how can we help them. And it has very little to do with 
tests and mind games and competition, which is the basis of most schooling. (laughs) Well, that is the question that actually led me to you was I found the How Children Learn book and I found it fascinating. Honestly, I'm already distrustful of the school system because I look back and I was a stellar student. I got straight A's. I was at advanced placement classes. And looking back, I don't feel like any of it set me up for success. I almost feel like I was set back because I was so used to excelling in this way of following structure that maybe I would have been perfect for a corporate job. But I also have a rebel streak in me and I don't like being told what to do. <laughs> and so, so when Great. it came to like actually formulating my own goals and going for them. I was completely ill-equipped. And then all of this time that I had spent learning things like higher math, because I took calculus as a junior, (laughs) I have not used that one time. I barely know long division anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Use it or lose it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, what could I have been learning in that time? Like personal finance, like how to negotiate? There's so many things. Oh, absolutely. Right. But no one would trust us. Yeah. They, they think all we want to do is watch TV or cause trouble. That's <laughs> such a, a misunderstanding of childhood. And of course, what you and I share is like you know, one of the things that I did well in school. I wasn't good enough for calculus, but <laughs> I, was, I was a pretty good student. But I realized in hindsight, and again, this was like only after talking with John and getting some honesty about what was really going on in school. I was feigning interest just to get a grade. You know, I was obeying authority just to get a grade, just to get along. Had nothing to do with learning. I forgot everything as soon as I passed the test. Are you kidding me? (laughs) So the question is, why are so many schools just terrible at helping kids learn? Because we teach the way we were taught. It's almost like, you know, you could look back at like Spanky and the gang. I think there were actually silent movies before they became talkies in the 30s, where the truant officer is running around chasing the gang, you know, because they're not in school that day or they cut school. That's still the attitude. I mean, we do have truant officers, but they're not as prevalent as they were then. But we just have this idea that the only way to make someone learn something, especially something that they don't know, is to force them. And... It's just a crazy idea to think that, oh, today the entire class, because the curriculum says the third grade this week will learn about ancient Babylon. Why do they think that every third grader in America or in that state or even just in that little school district wants to learn about Babylon? But they can't. So they feign interest. They get used to obeying authority and accepting what they can't change. And play the game. There's actually a book called The School Game that came out a couple of years ago by an educator who pretty much nails it that way. It's just like, we all play this game and just to get through it, but why bother? It's a pretty good book, but it's not original. I mean, it's been said, I mean, John Holt was fairly original with his ideas about children's abilities to learn, but he always pointed out that he was inspired by books like The Biography of a Baby that was written in, I think, 1910 or so by Millicent Shin, a biologist who kept a very detailed record of the first two years of her daughter's life. And A.S. Neal, who ran Summerhill. I mean, John was inspired by a lot of alternative educators. Jonathan Kozol, Herb Cole, those maybe names people recognize, those were contemporaries of his. But unlike them, who they never gave up on trying to change schools, even though the more they tried, the less they changed. I mean, the schools have just gotten longer, more burdensome and more oriented towards competition based on your brain power as judged by a test score. So 
there's a lot that resists change. And the thought that, I mean, when you and I, I'm definitely older than you, Melissa, but I'm pretty sure that they didn't even have telephones in the classroom, except that unless you, you bought your own wireless phone now, a cell phone. But technology is never used in the schools. I mean, it's taken forever for them to get up to speed with computers. And so many people have learned computers outside of school now that degrees in computers, they have meaning for certain specialized areas, but you can get hired without a college degree if you've written a great program, you know, or or show great ability. So things are changing, but the schools aren't. And the very basis of them for me is childcare. And they look down their nose on childcare. They're there for instruction. It's for parents to give childcare. But that's nonsense. Children need care, you know, wherever they are. But just to treat them as like these little pupils that you can lecture and command and move around and have do things that you consider to be educational, it's like a gigantic charade. John Holt wrote it in his very first book, and this is based on his experiences teaching in private schools in Colorado and Massachusetts. And many of these schools, if not all of them, are still around because they're very wealthy. And what he said was the only difference between a good student and a bad student is the good student is careful not to forget what they studied until after the test. You know, you make a good point and something to bring up is a lot of times when we think about these general problems with society, we assume it's only affecting the marginalized communities, lower income neighborhoods, which I'm not saying that like that's definitely a huge problem. But I think it's one of the reasons that people with different incomes or maybe middle class tend to brush things aside. They think it's not affecting them. But these types of things are affecting all schools. And I would even argue, as somebody who hires for businesses now, that Mm -hmm. I am often more impressed by people who have not attended college but have accomplished something else because I know that they're a self-starter and they're not just there to follow authority because I need somebody who can come into my business and be like, okay, I've found this course to take and this is how I'm going to improve your business in a way that you can't do yourself. And so it's like, I think I do not look at a degree whatsoever when I'm hiring. And so I have gotten some buy-in from people because episode 206, we talked about the idea of unschooling. And so now for the people that are looking to work with their children, whether they're being their primary educator or they're just wanting to assist in their children learning outside of their school hours, I've written down some of the primary notes from how children learn. And so the first one I want to talk about is John Holt have talked about how children don't choose to learn in order to do things in the future. They choose to do right now what others in their world would do, and then through doing, they learn. So what does that mean exactly? I take it to mean that children know what they want to learn now, but we adults consider it less important than what we think they should learn because they can't see the future like we can. You know, they don't know that they're going to need to learn to do multiplication. So why bother letting them choose to play chess or learn how to do macrame or take karate when they could be learning math? It'd be better for them. And it's so present in the whole way we think about school is like, it's all about the future. I really liked President Obama. I voted for him. But I was really annoyed by his concept of let's win the future. 
What does that mean, win the future? Does <laughs> you know, time stop if we win the future? I mean, the future is always going to be the future. And we can't predict it. We could take guesses, but no one really knows. I mean, who saw the pandemic coming for crying out loud? You know? So the idea that children are the future, this is another myth of school that we've invested in greatly as a society. But children are not the future. Children are the present. Children are here now. And we spend so much time saying, oh, well, you should really learn Spanish now because you're going to need it later because the world is becoming bilingual. But what if the child wanted to learn the piano instead? <laughs> right? What's the harm? Just because, yeah, the world is changing and Spanish could be useful, but piano could be useful. <laughs> piano could bring you incredible pleasure and enjoyment as well as others. And here's the thing that really gets me. If there were really true educators with a vision of how learning happens, they would realize that you can learn Spanish by playing the piano. <laughs> you know, there's Spanish songs, there's Spanish music, there's so much that's related. To think that everything has got to be separate is another thing a school does. Like we have school subjects, English, math, science, history. But the reality is it's all of a piece. Only in school do we have these dotted lines separating math from history from science. In real life, choose a piano. You want to learn the piano, you learn a few things by ear, and people show you where to put your fingers, but then eventually you say, well, I want to learn to read music. So then you learn to read music, and then you learn about like composers and Beethoven. Who is that? Oh, he lived 200 years ago or so. Where did he come from? Why did he write these things? And then, like, you get into meters, four times, three, four times, six, four times. And that's all math. And actually, a lot of music notation is math, especially if you play a percussion instrument like the piano. It's just amazing to me how we just section everything off and say, oh, well, if you want to learn, I mean, this is the great thing about homeschooling. It's just like, if you don't know it, if your child wants to learn to play the piano and you don't have a clue, you just say, okay, we'll find someone, or we'll get you a book, or we'll get a course, we'll do a YouTube. It's flexible and agile. But in school, you can't do that because you got other kids there, and you got the structure of the school. That's why John was always pushing for small schools, small neighborhood schools. He liked the Danish model of schools, where every neighborhood, parents could start their own school, and as long as they had buy-in from one or two certified teachers. And then they would receive state funding, for that school, maybe 20, 30 kids, but for that year or a couple of years in that neighborhood, and then they move on to another school, either in the same neighborhood or a school that's more established, like a more conventional school. But we've just really gotten into the idea of everything's got to be this monster. I remember walking, I mean, I'm sorry, I, I'm not that old, but in the 1960s, we used to be able to walk home for lunch and then come back to school. I would eat at friends' houses because my house was too far away to walk. But it was a very friendly feeling. <laughs> it wasn't like this mass-produced thing where you got to bust 500 kids into this gigantic building and, and bust them out later. It could be a lot different. And John taught him in boarding schools in Colorado. And so he got a, a good feeling of what that was like, too. There could be so many different ways of conceiving of education. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate that John did for me and for many people. Turn them on to other cultures and other thinkers about how children learn and the social aspects of learning, how we learn through being part of our culture. Every now and then they'll invite someone in for like Spanish Day or Italian Day or Martin Luther King Day to talk about that. But 
That's parcel. I mean, that could be part of, of the fabric of, of every week, every day, not just one day. So school is set up very much on this factory model that we need to fill the bottle. I mean, John Holt used this metaphor of, of the bottling plant. Instead of that, he went with the garden. The garden was more his metaphor of how children learn. We've kind of mistaken growth for education, which is why he titled his magazine Growing Without Schooling. You don't have to go to grow. You're going to grow no matter what. Life, and you're going to learn. <laughs> we tend to think that you won't grow or, or learn properly unless you're in school for 18 years. Right. And you think of, oh, if you don't go to school in this typical way, even when people think of homeschool, it's like they think of a replicated classroom at home, which mm -hmm. is why it seems so overwhelming. But like you said, you could be teaching them how to bake or how to cook, which is actually a good skill to know. Absolutely. While teaching them fractions, <laughs> you know? And so, that, you know, yeah. It's more like just integrating them with your life a little bit in a new way. Well, another thing, another teaching point from the book is that children go from whole to parts in their learning, not from parts to whole. Can mm -hmm. you explain what that means? Sure. Let me give a simple example. A child wants to learn how to play chess. They see their brother, older brothers playing chess with friends and say, I want to learn how to play chess. They're not saying, I want to learn the rules of chess. I don't want to learn the strategies. I want to learn to play the game. So you introduce them to the pieces and how it works. And then as they learn the game through their actions and through the conversation with the other player, they are picking up on the particulars of how the, the pieces move. But what started it all wasn't, I want to know why that particular piece goes two forward, the horse. Why does it go two forward and one left or right? Instead, they're saying, what is this game? What is this all about? They start off with the big picture and they want to be part of it. It's like if they went to a play or a sports arena. They're just enveloped in the whole event. And then they find the little specifics that they can latch on to that interest them, that help them appreciate it. One of the things, I mean, to get a little philosophical here, but this is one of the things that John was, is he was a philosopher. One of the things that Aristotle and the ancient philosophers talk about when it comes to learning is it's not all just test scores and measuring brain waves, certainly not in those days. They had a very simple and straightforward concept. If you want to learn to be brave, you do brave acts. If you want to learn to play a musical instrument, you play a musical instrument. <laughs> and then they divided it into by choosing that big picture, like, I want to become part of this orchestra and, and play the violin. You then have the task of learning how to play that instrument. And that task involves two practices, let's call them, internal and external. The internal practices are, like I said earlier, like if you want to learn to play the piano, eventually you want to learn to read music. You're going to learn to read time. You're going to try and understand the history of these things and why certain songs are played in certain ways and at certain times. And that takes discipline. That takes the wherewithal to sit still or to move around, depending on how you learn, but to focus on those internal goods because reading is common to all of them. If you want to be a scientist, a historian, a poet, whatever, it helps to learn to read. A musician, same thing. But the other thing is the external practices. The external practices would be the friendships you make, the fame that you get, the awards and, and accolades that also support you in wanting to continue with this. But that becomes 
external motivation. It becomes completely instrumental. Now you're not learning because you love the subject. And John was very frequently used that word, love, as you know from how children learn. And most educators don't want to do that. That's so unscientific. But I think he's absolutely right because the way you get into the internal practices of any discipline, be it a sport or a science, you have to love it. you got to want to study like it. How do these equations work? How does this work? And it's the love that drives you. But what's really driving you is, oh, I'm going to get paid for it. I'm going to get a reward or I'm going to beat so-and-so and get an A+. You have a different take on how it's done and you're more likely to cut corners because you're not trying to excel at the task through mastering the internal practices, just trying to get the rewards of the external practices by participating in this. And in school, we have completely emphasized the external practices, the instrumental aspects of education, to the point where I couldn't believe this when I saw it in the news. I think it was in 2016 in India, they have very high stakes exams in India and your fate as a worker is pretty well sealed depending on how you do on certain tests. And these parents, there is video, Reuters has this, and, and I wrote about it in Teach Your Own. If someone's interested, you can see the footnote. But ABC News reported on it too. Parents were scaling the walls of the school during the test period and passing the answers to their children. They didn't care that there must have been 20, 30 parents doing this. But, I mean, that shows you the instrumental nature of education. It has nothing to do with learning the subject. They just want their kids to pass so they could get a good job. Because they know that what they're learning, they could fake or make up and learn on the job. You know, we're completely wedded to this idea, as educators at least. We need to grade and reward people, and that those are the people that get the most rewards are the people that are the most deserving. But we all know that a lot of that's based on wealth. In India, that's certainly the case. I mean, these are the parents who are passing the test answers to their children were not ones whose children were being tutored after school every day or going to college prep classes on the weekends. There's a real need to fall in love with the subject and then get into the specifics. And I think that's what John is getting at when he talks about how children start with the whole and then get into the particulars of a subject. Right. There's a few things I want to touch on from that is the first thing I actually remember when I was a kid, I quit a lot of things. And again, it's kind of a theme where I would go through phases of being like, maybe I'm not the type of person who can ever really finish anything or do something long term. Well, I remember when I was quitting flute because I didn't Mm -hmm. like having to breathe that hard. (laughs) And I was returning my flute from the flute rental place and I saw this little girl playing the piano. And something about it drew me in. But my mom's like, we're not going to rent a piano if you're going to quit it again. And so I was like, well, I'll think about it. And I remember learning that something about the piano... I read something very general that said like learning the piano can make you smarter and really learning any music can make you smarter. But also Mm -hmm. that if you learn the piano, it'll help with any other instrument that you're trying to learn and that it even helps your math skills and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this really seems like a well-rounded thing for me to do. And somehow as a fifth grader, that's what got me to 
start piano and actually continue it is because I didn't, wasn't just doing it for the musical ability. I was actually thinking while I was practicing, I'm getting smarter as I do this. And so (laughs) it it was, it's kind of that whole part that I was thinking Mm -hmm. about. It was like a balance between two future of thinking for me because I was never very good at future thinking, but (laughs) it's like right now I'm getting smarter and that'll be with me in the future. So that's one point. The other thing I want to talk about is What's interesting about school is that it really does sort of seal in your relationship with failure because you fail at something and that like you might fail a whole grade and have to stay back, which makes so many people afraid of failure. And it's also the one thing you have to start reframing when you become an entrepreneur, you start your own business or something along those lines is to reframe failure as more of experimentation or your path to learn. And the third point I had written down about children learning is that Mm -hmm. children actually learn by making mistakes and then noticing and correcting their own mistakes, which is the opposite of what Mm -hmm. they do in school. So can you go into that a little bit deeper? Certainly, certainly. And you make some excellent points there, Melissa. And I really appreciate your comments about the piano. I love the piano. I've been playing it. My parents bought a player piano when I was younger. My dad loved to sing. And I would put my fingers on top of the keys as they're going up and down. And then when it stopped and the piano roll was, was over, I would try and duplicate what my fingers had felt. And eventually my parents said, do you want piano lessons? And I said, sure. And I couldn't believe it. The first teacher they took me to said, oh, you should really learn the accordion first. <laughs> I was like, no, I want to learn the piano. <laughs> but he was a friend of my family and I got stuck with an accordion for a couple of months. It was infuriating. There's a piano in our house. I couldn't believe it. You know, so yeah, people have these crazy ideas of what you need to do in order to learn. And again, I knew what I wanted. I wanted to learn the piano. (laughs) Oh, goodness. I remember just came flying back. But yeah, I mean, the chance to learn from our own failures and mistakes without like, I mean, we're going to feel bad and ashamed probably no matter what. But it's worse when it's public and worse when you're feeling that you're being judged. And John wrote a book called Never Too Late about learning to play the cello when he was in his 40s and 50s. And one of the reasons he wrote the book, he said, was he didn't want it to dispel this idea that you can only do things or learn them well if you start young and stay with them until you're older. And that what we do as a child determines what we're going to be in the future. There's a lot of good wisdom in that book. But it's disguised as how I learned to play the cello. But I think that that's important is that we want to think that, as you mentioned, that like if you don't do a certain thing in school or a certain thing that your parents want you to do, they're going to be marked as a failure or they're going to tell you that, oh, you'll never make it as such and such. You'll never be able to be a lawyer or a doctor or a race car driver or whatever it is, as if they all know. Maybe there are some instances where someone could say that with certainty, but... I really doubt it. In terms of learning from mistakes and failures, it's really important. How else do you develop self-knowledge? And that's one of the things that gets me. I've got three daughters who are now all grown women. They're 34, 31, and 28, 29. She's going to be 29 on October 7th. When they were growing up, they started off with tap dancing. I taught all three of them the piano. None of them stuck with it, but One went off and learned the bass and guitar and drums. Another became a tap dancer. Another became a singer and guitarist. You don't know where these things are going to go. But one of the best things that happened during that early period was when I was 
I got really upset when my middle daughter, Allison, is really good at the piano. And she just gave up. And I kind of made a scene one night. My wife said, don't do that, Pat. You're going to turn her off to music overall. And she was right. So I apologized for it. I'm glad I did because Allison loves music. And she's the tap dancer in the family. (laughs) You know, she's an incredible dancer. So letting kids quit and do things is part and parcel. Like for homeschooling, I sometimes hear parents say, well, I have a teenager who's in high school. What am I supposed to do? Buy them a chemistry set? It's like, yeah, why not? If they want to learn chemistry, yeah, it costs two, three hundred dollars. But guess what? So does a pair of sneakers these days. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> come on. And so, yeah, but what if they don't want to become a chemist? So what? They're still going to learn, right? They're going to learn something that's valuable for them. And again, we're back to this present issue. The music teacher may know that because I have small hands and accordion keys are easier to play, but that would have turned me off completely if I had to stay with the accordion, (laughs) for sure. You play the instrument that the adults play. You really feel important, you know, like, oh, wow. We have little pianos for kids and stuff, little guitars, violins. I mean, there's some instruments that have to be small to fit your hands. The idea that you shouldn't start something unless you're going to completely finish it well, that's true if you have obligations for, to a team or to an employer or something. Sure, that's a contract. But in education and learning and what I want to think about, how I want to spend my time, please. I would have been so happy playing the piano three or four hours a day instead of going to school. You know? <laughs> but that never happened. But we learn from these things. And that's something else. Is like No one's judging our learning except our parents, perhaps. Usually parents are pretty sympathetic. Well, most parents are if you make a failure or mistake. But in school, it it could be tough. I mean, yeah, there are sensitive teachers and stuff, but there are insensitive students too. (laughs) And the teacher's (laughs) not there when you're being made fun of outside of school. So Right. It's like at school, it's a combination of learning and kind of competition. That's why I think I thrived was I just wanted to be the best in the class. But like you said, sometimes that might mean I cheated on a test so I could keep my honor. (laughs) So Yeah. One thing I find interesting though, why is it that children may learn better by watching older children than by watching adults? First of all, Watching an older child as a younger child, the dynamic does not automatically have that teacher-student feeling to it. It's more of a companionship sort of thing and just here watching you or they might not even say, I want to learn how to do it. Let me just watch you, something like that. Or if they won't say anything, just watch. If it's an adult, because we tend to teach the way we were taught, it's almost impossible for most adults to not try and teach a child, <laughs> you know? It is just amazing. Like, if a child wants to learn something, we'll structure it and turn it into a lesson. But if they want to play a game and learn how to play a game, they'll watch their friends and they'll learn. They may ask questions and they'll get their answers and, and go from there. But who's asking the questions? Usually it's the adults. So child gets that feeling that most adults are just there to teach them or entertain them in some way. And so it's easier to learn from someone who doesn't have that attitude towards you. I think as adults, we really have to figure out how to make ourselves more welcoming of children without always turning everything into a lesson. That's one of the things I'm telling parents when they want to start homeschooling is enjoy your time with your children. Don't sacrifice your relationship with them on the altar of education. Foolish. You're their parent. You love them. 
That's the primary part of your life with them. But growth and learning will happen, and you will facilitate that for them because you're their parent. You're going to help them. Whether you send them to school or part-time school, homeschool, whatever it is, you're part of it. But it's always up to the child or the young adult to make these choices. And the only way we get good at making choices, Melissa, is by making choices. And that's why we have to have a tolerance for failure with our kids. Sometimes they're going to make bad choices. We can control that in the sense that we're not going to let them make the choice of swimming in the ocean if they don't know how to swim. <laughs> you know, we'll teach them first. It's not like saying run out and play in the traffic and so on. So children and adults can have a more cooperative relationship, a more of a partnership than a dominator. I'm the boss. You're the child. Shut up, sit down and do as I say. <laughs> So fantasy provides children with the means to do and learn from activities that they can't yet do in reality. What would be an example of using fantasy to help children learn? (laughs) Here's a great example from my own life. I came home from work one day and my daughters were playing school with a couple of other homeschoolers from our neighborhood. Kids learn fantasy, I mean, use fantasy not to escape the world, but to get into it. My daughters, were, they were trying to understand what's it like to be a teacher? What's it like to be in a classroom? What's it like? And so they sort of put on like this play that they created free form of teachers in school. And what they think, based on what they'd seen on TV, uh, none of them had gone to school at that time. Although two of my daughters chose to go to school, we let them, and then they came out. <laughs> and we continued homeschooling doesn't have to be this all or nothing experience, but that's another issue about education. We've set it up that way. So the final sort of learning model or learning theory that I wanted to touch on is that children make sense of the world by creating mental models and assimilating new information to those models. How do we use that concept to help our children learn? I would say we use that model by accepting it as the truth, that I have a mental model of how I learn and how I want to react to certain things, but I can't transmit that or communicate that. I mean, this is one of the things about mathematics or even music or any difficult subject that gets abstracted at some point. You can't transfer a mental model from one person to another. Everyone has to build their own. That's why it took me. I hated math as a kid, and I did okay. I was always a B, B B-minus student in it. I just never, never cared for it. And then when I started working at Holt Associates, I had to become the bookkeeper at one point. And I couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, by learning about credits and debits, I mean, I've been keeeping a checkbook on my personal checkbook, but by keeping a business record with credits and debits, it finally occurred to me. I said, so this is what that number line is all about. Positive and negative numbers. Now it made sense to me because I had a use for it and it made sense. You know, the money came from here and went there. <laughs> Whereas it was always like this weird idea that there's zero in the middle of this line and the numbers are positive this way and negative. Th- and that was so abstract to me. And I could never understand it. And whenever a teacher would try to explain negative numbers using the number line, I just wanted to pull my hair out. It's like, but lines don't have beginnings and ends. They don't even have middles. They go on forever. (laughs) And again, that's because my mental model had that in there. I mean, other students immediately got what the number line was, which, of course, infuriated me and made me feel stupid. But (laughs) probably another reason why I stayed away from math for as long as I did. But once I did, and then I discovered through John Holt, he introduced me to a bunch of uh, math puzzles. 
And those started to intrigue me and give me stronger ideas about math and how it could be used. Right. I honestly need to know why something's applicable for my brain to even comprehend it. Otherwise, I can feel myself just resisting the information yeah. the whole time. And the same thing comes from, and this was another point that John Holt made, is that I don't really want to hear or to be taught unless I ask. And I know that one of the things he said was that when we mm -hmm. teach without being asked, we are saying in effect that you're not smart enough to know that you should know this and not smart enough to learn it. <laughs> so, That's right. uh, yeah, I just found that interesting because I've always been resistant mm -hmm. to that. Like, I can feel it actually now as a parent. My mom will be coming in, you know, you can do this. And I'm like, did I ask? I've got seven books on this, you know? And, <laughs> right? and then I'm trying to release that because I know it's just like my ego. And I'm like, oh, really? But I don't know. Like, I just like mm -hmm. to learn when I'm prepared to learn. I'm open when I'm asking, just like anybody is. And so, mm -hmm. anyways, thank you for being the person to take on John Holt's legacy and providing so much of this research yourself as well. And you've written a number of your own books. So for listeners that are interested in connecting with you, learning about John Holt or your work, where's the best place for them to connect with you? That would be our website, johnholtgws.com. The GWS stands for Growing Without Schooling. It's the magazine that John started in 1977. And when he passed away in 1985, I continued publishing it until 2001. There's 143 issues, and it's all parents from all around the country and all around the world writing in about how their children learn, how did high school subjects got into college, how they found work as adults. And the website is full of books and materials. I write a blog for it. There's videos connected to it as well. Anything to do with homeschooling or unschooling in particular, I try to put up there. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com x63. So your challenge for this week is to lay off a little bit. <laughs> I know it's easy to put a bunch of pressure on our kids accidentally, but remember that even if they're failing a class in traditional schooling does not mean that they're not applying themselves. Maybe consider that the structure isn't optimal for the way that your child learns and provide more learning opportunities at home. So this isn't just for if you're homeschooling. This can also help you to balance out maybe some of the ways that the school system is deflating your child's capacity to learn by providing those opportunities or following their curiosity and setting them up with environments that will engage that curiosity. It doesn't have to be learning a specific thing either. Maybe they're hanging out with some older kids and learning how to communicate. Maybe they're learning social skills or they're just playing with a toy and learning how to stay focused for a period of time. Things that we all need nowadays. So if you get anything out of this episode and you're not planning to homeschool, I would encourage you to just look at the concept of learning a little bit differently and trust that just life experience in general is going to give your child what he or she needs. And everything around that, you can facilitate this following the curiosity, following the child by providing the tools or the environment for that curiosity to thrive. And let me know how it goes. 
I am in this journey with you. I am going to be in this journey for the next 18 years. So I want all the resources I can get. So feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. For all of my premium members, thank you so much for being my biggest supporters and for helping this show thrive as well. If you are not yet a member of premium, you can join at mindlove.com slash premium or right there in the Apple podcast app. Although I do prefer that you go through my website. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time.